Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. Oh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening for those of you listening uh, out of the country. I'm Bill Glasgow. I'm here with Susan Wachter from Penn Institute for Urban Research. I'm with the Volcker Alliance, and this is Special Briefing. We have a special, special briefing for you, as as we do every month. This month, we're looking at state budgeting, the COVID-19 recession, and what comes next. We're going to start off with a little look at the Volcker Alliance's latest truth and integrity in state budgeting report, and then look at the, the here and now, what comes afterwards, with a great panel. Erica McKellen from the National Council of State Legislatures, Gabe Pettick, the California Legislative Analyst, Juliet Tennant from University of Utah, and our colleague on the Volcker Alliance uh, Budget Research, and Lisa Washburn from Municipal Market Analytics, likewise a colleague on the Budget Research. Thank you all for coming. Just a couple of housekeeping issues. You'll see at the end of the program some contact information. Please feel free to contact any of the speakers anytime. Their emails will be up there. In addition, the full transcript, video transcript and audio transcript of this session will be on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites afterwards, also with a copy of the Truth and Integrity and State Budgeting Report, or at least a link to it. It's, it's pretty fat. We've taken questions from audience members in advance. We have plenty of time for Q&A and we've left time for it. We're not taking live questions. But we certainly encourage you to always put in questions when you register for the event. So with that, Susan, let me hand it off to you and welcome everybody. Let's get to the meat of the discussion. Well, thank you very much, Bill. Thank you for being a co-organizer as usual uh, with Penn Institute of Urban Research. But today is a special, actually special briefing because we are going to focus on a new report that has just been issued by the Voker Alliance under the direction of Bill Glasgow. It is the Truth and Integrity in State Budgeting Report, and it's had major impact on state practices as it also monitors state practices. So we will begin with Bill, who will be uh, presenting the major results, and then we will continue with uh, Juliet Tenner from University of Utah, who's also contributed to the report. And then we will have broader comments from a stellar panel list of panelists whom you've already heard of. So not to shorten the time that we have, let me turn directly back to Bill. Thank you, Bill. Please go ahead with the findings of your important and timely report. Well, thanks very much, Susan. We're both in the research business and appreciate the, the kind introduction. I'll make this very short. It's a report that's over 100 pages. It's called Truth and Integrity in State Budgeting, Preparing for the Storm. That's kind of interesting. We looked at state budgets for 2015 through 2019. This is the fourth <laughs> annual report in this series. This is our first time looking at a five-year trend. And the five-year trend lines told us some very interesting things. We look at state budget procedure more than state budget numbers, and we put a premium on budget sustainability, fiscal sustainability, fiscal transparency, especially. We look in five areas, budget forecasting, not so much how accurately how states forecast, but but really how the states do their forecasts or whether they do them at all in some cases. We looked at budget maneuvers, which is a polite way of saying one-time measures or budget gimmicks. Uh, states with a lot of budget maneuvers, one-time revenues, one-time deals, have a hard time balancing the budget from year to year. We looked at reserve funds, a very important thing, which I'll touch on in a moment. We looked at legacy costs, which is uh, which was a big problem for states before COVID, continues now. This is pensions and other post-employment benefits uh, known as OPEB or retiree health care. And we looked at transparency, which we can touch on briefly. So in terms of budget forecasting, we saw a trend improvement in five states. We saw a lot of states use the record-long economic recovery as a reason to fortify their budget processes and their fiscal reserves. So budget forecasting 
budget forecasting, we saw improvement, but there's a lot of room to improve further, especially in the area of long-term forecasting. My colleague, Julia Tennant is from University of Utah, former state budget director and chief economist. She can tell you all about how Utah really engaged fully in this. They do three-year budgets now. They do budget stress testing. They want to know if they're going to have a structural deficit three years out. Some states do. Some states don't look beyond the current year. This is something that needs work. We looked at, at budget maneuvers. Not surprisingly, states used the 2015-2019 period, basically the last half of the recession, to reduce their use of one-time measures to balance the budget. I said, this isn't terribly surprising. State revenues were, for the most part, very flush, so states didn't have to scramble around. Unfortunately, Pennsylvania, where Susan is, New Jersey, where I live, New York, Illinois, Kansas remain pretty addicted to this to this kind of behavior. It's almost cultural as well as financial, something that really these states need to address. Nonetheless, there was a trend improvement in 20 states. In reserve funds, states went into the COVID pandemic with rainy day funds at a record high level, according to the National Association of State Budget Officers. And in our data, we see widespread improvement, a trend improvement in five states, but certainly widespread improvement in the amount set aside. Wyoming, which could improve its processes, actually had a year's worth of funds in the rainy day fund. That stood them in good stead when energy prices plunged before and during the COVID pandemic. Some states like Illinois still basically don't have any money in the bank, at least 27 states, however, use their rainy day fund balances to help balance the budget. That's what it's there for. Now we have to see whether states will follow our recommendations for best practices, which is to have rules for replenishment as well as withdrawals. Not every state does. That's still an issue. In legacy costs, pensions, OPEB, 33 states still are experiencing moderate to severe stress. The good news is, is that there was improvements in funding and in procedures in 12 states. California has done a lot of work in this area by voter approval. Kentucky has improved its pension funding. In New Jersey, Governor Murphy is proposing full pension funding. This still doesn't whittle down the huge imbalance in uh, unfunded pension liabilities, but many states are using newfound funds to address pensions. The American Rescue Act does not allow direct funding of pension liabilities from federal funds, but there are workarounds that we've seen, and I think we'll, we'll, we'll see states continue to figure out a way to work around the rules or work with the rules. Finally, in budget transparency, most states are pretty good about this. They tell you what's in the budget. Arkansas is still the worst state in disclosing online what's in the budget. We saw trend improvements in five states. The biggest improvement in this area, and a very important one for, for this reconstruction period, is states disclosing what the value of uh, deferred infrastructure maintenance is. That sounds very geeky. Brookings just this week came out with a recommendation that states do asset inventories. California, Tennessee, Alaska, Hawaii, and Illinois, uh, believe it or not, all are now inventorying their state and sometimes state and local assets, putting numbers on what it'll cost to bring them back to a state of good repair. In California, it's around 60 some odd billion dollars. Gabe knows the exact number. The important thing is these are liabilities that states built up off balance sheet, really, and need to address their debts. And uh, this will come up when, if and when the infrastructure bill passes. The first thing we're going to want to know is what needs work. And many states can't answer that question. It's, you know, we, we need a highway, we need a bridge. We just don't know. I think I'll leave it at that, except to say that the federal aid that has been passed so far is many times what Congress passed during the uh, after the last recession. One of the results of this is that, on average, state tax revenues were in the past 12 months, February 21 versus February 20, uh, the past 12 months are basically flat, down very, very slightly. However, there's a bifurcation. We can deal with that later. States that have a lot of exposure to tourism and natural resources like Wyoming or Alaska, tourism, Hawaii or New York, have been hit disproportionately hard. States with a lot of work from home employees, 
upper income employees did much better. States that uh, charge sales tax on food like Alabama also did much better. So we're seeing haves and have nots as we go into this period of reconstruction. And I think I'll leave it with that. You're welcome, please, to, to download the report from the website afterwards. And um, let's get on with the discussion. And I believe we are now turning to Julia Tennert, who is going to expand on these findings and had an important role to play in them. So there's a lot here. It's 100 pages. Tell us your top view of them, please. There is a lot there. Thank you so much, Bill. And thank you, Susan. I've been working with the Volcker Alliance on the Truth and Integrity and State Budget Project since I left state service as Utah's chief budget officer. Let's see, it's about been about six years uh, to do research and advise policymakers in my role at the University of Utah. And it's been a real honor to work with the Volcker Alliance and the research team. Uh, they're without a doubt among the most insightful, hardworking experts in applied public budgeting research. As someone who advises state policymakers, this comprehensive view that the project's research provides, it's particularly helpful. So we can see how policies and practices uh, stack up against other states as well as over time. So just a really quick plug for the data laboratory that the Volcker Alliance provides as a complement to the report. So again, we have, it's a pretty bulky report and a lot of information in that report, but the data laboratory provides even more information. It's a tool that allows analysts to slice and dice 4,500 data points from our work to gain you know, unique insights. So a couple of comments, and then I look forward to hearing from the other panelists in the Q&A. Uh, the experience of the last 13 months has definitely highlighted the importance of the practices uh, that we've assessed in our research. So those, you know, Bill's pointing out, those states that upheld and strengthened their fiscal stability practices were better equipped to manage the acute fiscal stress, especially in those initial stages of the pandemic when it really seemed like the economy was in free fall. Those states that have made the most progress addressing those legacy costs, avoiding the budget maneuvers, which again is kind of a nice way of saying directing that one-time revenue towards ongoing needs, which is just not sustainable, and shoring up rainy day funds, we've seen them fare better over the past year. Now, we can't deny that that historic federal fiscal lease relief has, it's been a lifeline across the board, but we've seen it be particularly critical in those places or those states that have made less progress towards working less progress and working towards fiscal sustainability. There is a saying that the best day to plant a tree was 20 years ago. We see that in the current status of state budget circuit COVID-19, you know, so we have all this research that shows those states that have planted those trees and how they've fared during the COVID-19 uh, recession crisis. But the second best day is today. So as the recovery is taking greater and greater hold and with federal fiscal relief boosting state budgets, there's an opportunity right now for states that are behind to work towards those best practices in our report. Those that do not do so, I think face even greater challenges as that federal fiscal relief eventually unwinds against a backdrop of really what we're seeing, increasing complexity and risk on both the revenue and the expenditure sides of state budgets. So on that note, I just wanna highlight a little bit of information from our report. I want to highlight a practice that is actually relatively easy to adopt, that multi-year budget forecasting that Bill referenced. So states can't just flip a switch today to catch up on pension funding, to catch up on infrastructure maintenance or accelerate rainy day fund deposits. But the multi-year forecast, it's a tool that can be implemented in the near term and that can help provide the information that's necessary to develop and implement a plan for incremental progress in those other areas. And it can also be a tool that helps states, and we've seen this, we've seen this, um, you know, I have a lot of experience in Utah and we certainly have seen this in Utah. It can help states to be more resilient to economic shocks, which protects the progress that's been made. When our research began, we saw that 28 states had some sort of multi-year revenue forecast exercise in place. Now, over the course of our research, over the course of those five or so years, that number has increased to 32. That multi-year revenue forecast, it can help policymakers to assess the stability and the sufficiency of revenue sources. And you, it can help policymakers to see gaps down the road when the current budget, current year's budget is based on te temporary revenue sources. And so this is especially timely and important now. A, Federal fiscal stimulus funding is a temporary revenue source. 
And then just as important as the multi-year revenue forecast, and perhaps even more important, is a multi-year expenditure forecast. So a longer-term look at the demands of the state. These longer-term looks at how changing demographics, infrastructure needs, and other dynamics are they're an important part of the fiscal stability equation, and they can help inform plans and then eventually avoid crisis-driven decision-making. So on this practice, over the course of our research, the number of states that engaged in multi-year expenditure forecasting has increased to 20, from 21 to 25. And so there's been improvement there, but there's certainly more improvement to be made. So I'll end my remarks there because we have a really excellent panel and I'm actually excited to take part in the, in the Q&A. But again, thank you so much for the opportunity to participate in this webinar today and then also for the opportunity to participate in the research. Thank you so much, Julia. And thank you for your work on this. Let me just note that the report is available on the VOCA website and also on the Penn Institute of Urban Research website, as well as links to the Data Lab. Now let me turn to Erica McKellar who's on the front lines of the state budget's response to the current crisis and to long-range planning. So we are so pleased to have you with us, Erica, who is uh, with the Fiscal Affairs Units of the National Conference of State Legislatures. What is your thinking at this very critical time as new assistance is coming, but at the same time, a crisis which may have longer-term implications going forward. And we've heard that there are states that have adopted prior to this uh, crisis, new procedures, including rainy day funds and long-term budgeting and revenue for expenses and revenues. How much of a difference in your perspective has this made to the resilience of some states and perhaps the less stability for others at this moment in time? Thanks, Susan. It's great to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity. As Susan mentioned, I'm, I'm with the Fiscal Affairs Program at the National Conference of State Legislatures. And for those of you who aren't familiar with NCSL, we are a bipartisan organization that represents the legislatures of the 50 states, territories in Washington, D.C. And we're dedicated to strengthening the legislative institution and facilitating information sharing among the states. As Susan mentioned, one of the topics that I cover for NCSL are you know, state budget conditions around the country. And for that, I work closely with the legislative fiscal staff in these states. And one of the things we do to try to get a handle on how state budgets are faring in short term and long term is we survey legislative fiscal offices a couple of times a year to get a sense of you know, their revenue projections, how they're expecting the major tax categories to perform rainy day fund information, um, among some other things. And we most recently surveyed states in January and February, as many states were going into sessions and revising those forecasts up from some of the dire projections that we saw at the start of the pandemic. So what we found is that revenue projections for the remainder of fiscal year 2021, which ends on June 30th for most states, have really been revised up from those catastrophic losses that states had kind of been anticipating at the start of the pandemic. Over 40 states reported that they expect to meet or exceed their revenue projections for the current fiscal year. Uh, the survey kind of showed, you know, as, as Bill mentioned, that even before Congress passed the American Rescue Plan Act, the you know, state revenues overall were rebounding. You know, personal income tax collections are the most important tax source for most states, and they were performing above estimate or on target in nearly 35 states that reported. General sales and use tax collections are the second most important revenue source for most states. They were also performing much better than states had anticipated at the start of the pandemic, with over 30 states expecting their general sales tax collections to meet or exceed their most recent revenue forecast. In the interest of time, I won't go into detail on some of the other tax categories that make up state revenue, you know, corporate income taxes, severance taxes, uh, but the full report's available on our website. Please feel free to, to take a look and, and send any questions that you might have my way. Um, I want to talk just a little bit, Bill kind of touched on this on some of the reasons that we're seeing some of these tax categories perform better than we expected. You know, on the personal income tax side, a lot of the higher income tax brackets that states rely on for their personal income tax collections were able to largely shift their work to remote work. So we didn't see a lot of, of job loss in those tax categories, which helped states that rely heavily on the personal income tax. On the sales tax side, you know, I think even when states were largely shut down, we still saw consumers going out there and spending money. I think they just kind of shifted what they were spending their money on. We saw 
consumers move away from uh, spending on travel and services and spending more money on home goods. As folks were staying home, we saw people shop online a lot more. So I think the recent Wayfair decision and the ability of states to collect online sales taxes really kind of helped bolster those state general sales tax collections. I want to kind of pause and note that while this is all good news and we hope this trend continues, you know, some states had revised these projections up from some pretty catastrophic numbers. And as Bill mentioned, you know, the recovery has been a little bit uneven. There are some nuances in the responses. Some states are projecting revenue back where they were before the pandemic, and others are still kind of lower than they were anticipating. You know, some states are in really good positions and others are still facing some challenges. But one phrase that comes up a lot when talking with states is kind of this this term cautiously optimistic. And I think that's a really good way of kind of thinking about state budgets right now. Both Juliet and Bill kind of touched on this, but the federal aid has really helped keep state budgets afloat through the worst of the economic downturn. As of March, states have more federal aid to help them recover. You know, in addition to funding that will go directly to program areas, the American Rescue Plan Act includes $350 billion in flexible aid to state, local, and tribal governments. And we're working on kind of trying to track how states are planning to use those funds. You know, many states are in the middle of their budget negotiations right now. So we're seeing a lot of conversations happen right now around how states would like to use these funds. And a lot of states are kind of waiting for guidance from Treasury around what those allowable uses will be. Um, But we're starting to get a sense of how states would would really like to use those funds if possible. Some of the most common things that legislatures have proposed so far are around cybersecurity and information technology, housing programs, workforce development programs, other social service programs largely targeted at populations that may have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic. There are several proposals, education proposals to address learning loss that occurred for students during um, remote schooling. Uh, Improving broadband access is an area that's really top of mind for states for some of these funds. Several states would like to use the money to pay back money they borrowed from the federal government for their unemployment trust funds. I think the latest was 20 states are currently borrowing for those funds. So if that's an allowable use, that's certainly something that those states will be looking at. A few states are talking about replenishing rainy day funds that they may have used during the pandemic if that um, is an allowable use. And some states have proposed using some of the funds for environmental conservation purposes. I think many of the proposals that we've seen show that, you know, by and large, states are mindful that these are one-time funds that they're receiving and looking at kind of one-off projects and programs that they can spend these funds on. That end, I think one of the one of the areas that states are most interested in using these funds for are for transportation and infrastructure projects. I know, I know Bill mentioned that deferred maintenance, and I think that's something that states are talking about for these funds. A lot of those conversations are kind of still broad at the moment and being kind of put on hold as states wait to see whether a transportation and infrastructure bill will kind of come down the pipeline. Now, states don't want to allocate all this money from the American Rescue Plan to these projects if they're going to get a separate pot of money that would allow them to kind of use these American Rescue Plan funds for other priorities. One last thing I kind of want to mention that's different about these funds as opposed to the coronavirus relief funds that states received from the CARES Act is that they can be used to replace lost revenues, which states are looking at. But the bill does include some language that prohibits states from using the funds to directly or indirectly offset a reduction in net tax revenue. And this language is kind of creating some confusion in the states, and they're waiting for some clarification on what that might mean, both for any tax reductions that states might enact, but also for tax credit programs that states might have in place or might be planning. So I'll pause there, Susan, and, you know, that's just kind of a broad look at how state budgets are faring and how we're expecting states to plan some of the American Rescue Plan funds. And then I know you're going to turn it over to Gabe, who will give us a great overview of what's happening in California. Thank you very much, Erica. And Erica, I assume we'll be able to have your report also on our website. So, Absolutely. And now we turn to a gay pedic who is absolutely on the front lines at this moment of great uncertainty. Some things we've been through have been particularly difficult for California, but you've come through quite well, I understand. But now we have planning going forward in time of lots of questions. Tell us how you are thinking about these issues of assistance and yet challenge at the same time. Go ahead, please. Thank you, Susan. And thank you, Bill, for inviting me to participate in the the session today. And, And I also 
thank uh, the uh, Volcker Alliance for their important work on state uh, budgeting. We find the information you compile to be very useful. I'll start just by briefly recapping that last spring, California came into the year, well, at the beginning of 2020, the state was on quite strong fiscal footing. The state had approximately $20 billion in reserves. And this was largely the result of a decade of responsible budgeting practices. And as Bill referenced, the voters had approved updated budget reserve mechanism in California. And so as a result, even when last spring, there was an anticipated roughly $40 billion drop in revenues from our prior forecast, policymakers were able to balance the budget while largely keeping the state safety net programs intact, which of course was really important as we were grappling with the effects of the pandemic. As many of you know, of course, because of how the recession has played out, combined with the structure of the state's tax system, revenues did not fall as we all had anticipated. And if you think back to last June, our policymakers adopted a budget on the assumption that we would experience a plunge in revenues. But then because revenues largely remained on their prior trajectory, the gap between the assumption and the actual trend has created what we termed a large revenue windfall and a large one-time surplus. Back in November, our annual forecast estimated that the surplus was about $26 billion. The governor's office, when the governor released his uh, budget proposal in January, reflected a somewhat smaller but still very large surplus for the current year of about $15.5 billion. And yet, despite the very large surplus that both the governor's office and our office estimated in the current year, both of our offices also projected that there was the uh, emergence of a structural deficit in the future years of our forecast. So beginning in the 2021-22 fiscal year at a few billion dollars growing to upwards of 13 billion by 2024-25. So in light of this, our office had recommended that the state use around half of the windfall surplus to what we termed re replenish budget resilience and then use the other half to address pandemic-related expenses. Now, the story has continued to evolve, and even since the governor released his budget proposal in January, revenues have remained you know, very strong, exceeding even the governor's estimates from January. And so through February, the state tax collections are already $14.3 or about 13% higher than what the January forecast estimated. So, as uh, you know, advisors to the legislature, the really fundamental question that our office is grappling with right now is whether that increase in revenue that we're seeing happening in real time reflects something, a one-time kind of continued one-time windfall, or if there's been a change in our the ongoing collections of our revenue. So one of our economists on the staff refers to the question as, has California, are revenues just at a higher intercept or has the slope of collections changed? And so that, I think it's a good way to sort of capture the question that we are, are facing. And I think we will know more in May when the May revision comes out and our office does an updated estimate of, of revenues. But, you know, assuming that a lot of this revenue uh, strength reflects sort of a temporary situation I think you know you can expect our office to continue to make the recommendation or offer the guidance that the policymakers should strike a prudent balance between restoring budget resilience and providing the fiscal support necessary to get through the pandemic. And our office is also working on the development of a framework for the legislature to think about how to allocate this you know truly substantial influx of federal resources that has been referenced and. That remains a work in progress, but that's kind of the situation in California, and I'll stop there. Yeah, that's a really wonderful overview of the current windfalls, but yet future structural deficits. And we now have the pleasure of turning to Lisa Washburn, who can give us a view from markets, how markets are seeing all of these swirling different trends at this moment. 
and particularly California, which is what the fifth largest economy in the world, are they dissimilar or similar to other states in this surprisingly strong revenue, or is there a bifurcation among the states? Please give us the wisdom of your insights. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. And thanks to the Volcker Alliance and the Penn Institute for Urban Research for giving me the opportunity to participate in the discussion today. MMA has been involved with the Truth and Integrity in State Budgeting Project since its pilot, where we looked at just three states before expanding to cover all 50. The ability to look at state budgeting practices from the perspective of sustainability over a five-year period, mainly a period of economic growth, has provided some really valuable insights, and you've heard some of them already. When we started the project, the states were just emerging from the effects of the Great Recession. During the fiscal year studied, many states used the better economic and revenue environment to strengthen their resilience by building reserves, enhancing budget practices, and chipping away at legacy liabilities through greater contributions and or reforms. And over the same period, the use of state budget maneuvers, as you would expect, did wane. However, some states that entered the Great Recession with a strained fiscal position, particularly from a pension funding perspective, were impacted more acutely because of their investment losses in the system and the use of non-recurring revenues to close gaps from structural imbalances. Several states saw their ratings tumble multiple notches during the enduring economic recovery, which you, you know, may not have expected. During the five-year period, states like Illinois, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, and Kentucky faced multiple credit downgrades, and the credit gap and the distribution of ratings widened during that time. From when we started, the distribution was around AAA down to A-flat. By the time we finished the study, the distribution ranged from AAA down to B minus. And the distribution was much more barbell than it had been when we started. But, you know, rather than just focus on the negative, let's start with some of the positive developments that we encountered over the period. You know, states did put more emphasis on the creation, funding, and purpose and adequacy of rainy day funds. State reserves, rainy day funds plus general fund balances grew to an all-time high of about 121, uh, 122 billion um, in, by the end of fiscal 19, given that they're projected to fall based on fall estimates to about 81 billion at the end of fiscal 21. It's clear that they have played a significant role in managing budgets during the pandemic. States like California, like you heard from Gabe, and Connecticut institutionalized policies to rebuild reserves based on revenue volatility and found themselves with a significant buffer when the pandemic hit. Kansas and Montana, they actually joined uh, in participating with rainy day funds, enacting legislation to create them. Some states enhanced their budget practices, and I think you heard from Juliet, you know, Utah did so by making use of multi-year forecasting, which is really super critical in understanding how decisions made today will impact future budgets. And then there were a few states that, you know, really focused on what um, the growing cost of deferred maintenance would be on future budgets and began disclosing reports on that. Many states upped their pension contributions and OPEB started prefunding OPEBs. Some made reforms and uh, it all in an effort to reduce the, the uh, growth of annual contributions that were pressuring budgets. For example, Georgia began to prefund its OPEB obligations and Minnesota instituted some reforms by reaching an agreement with their teachers, the retired teachers. But for some states like New Jersey and Illinois, many years of fiscal missteps, the Great Recession, the tempered economic recovery, and their use of questionable budget solutions constrained their ability to adequately bolster their financial positions before the pandemic-induced recession hit. Asset sales, fund sweeps, using debt to fund operations were among the budget balancing strategies that continue to be used despite the economic expansion. It isn't to say that the states weren't able to do some good things during that time. Illinois did raise their taxes and New Jersey continued its progress on ramping up pension contributions and was slowly building up its reserves. But it just wasn't enough. And when the pandemic and the resulting recession hit, 
these two states lack the internal financial wherewithal to cover anticipated drops in revenue and borrowed heavily for operations. Illinois borrowed $3.5 billion and New Jersey borrowed $4.3 billion. The good news for these states, and you've heard this before from the other panelists, for these states and most of the others is that the revenues outperformed. You know, the federal government opened its coffers wide to keep the economy going and backfill state and local government revenues. The onslaught of money has stabilized credit quality for now, including and probably most importantly for Illinois and New Jersey. Current state budgets um, and those that are you know, being developed for fiscal year 22 will benefit from these non-recurring revenues. But a potential cliff's been created and how the states choose to use that money will be critical in determining longer term credit trajectories. If new or enhanced spending is funded with federal money, old problems, they're not going away anytime soon and new revenue challenges will emerge. But if the money is spent to pay down debt or for other you know, economically beneficial projects, then the states could emerge in better shape. Consider New Jersey specifically. You know, it borrowed $4.3 billion when its revenue projections were at their bleakest. Now it plans to end fiscal year 21 with a projected $6.3 billion in reserves. But it's growing its spending and it's drawing down $4.2 billion to pay for it. It's going to need to continue to fund its enhanced pension contributions that will account for about 15% of its general fund revenues. It's going to need to continue to fund you know, those new programs and spending growth that's added to the budget. It's only planning on having about $2.2 billion left in reserves you know, by the end of fiscal year 22. And it's going to need to start repaying back the, uh, the money that it borrowed in fiscal year 2023. If it decides to use the federal money to build resilience by paying down its debt, building reserves and making productive investments, it will be less worrisome than if it allows Trenton to grow or implement new programs. The federal government has really bought the states, particularly the weakest, time to restore their fiscal position and position themselves for the next economic slowdown or recession. You know, remember that this recession was really event-induced. It's not a normal cycle type of recession that we haven't seen that yet. I can't stress enough that strong fiscal governance is now more critical than ever. So shifting to market dynamics that you asked about, Susan, you know, one might say, well, what pandemic, right? I mean, the markets remain very strong for municipal issuers. Since the disruption early in the pandemic, that was allayed by the actions of the Federal Reserve that were geared towards stabilizing the market. The states have enjoyed a very accommodating market. Rates are being held low by the Fed, and spreads have tightened, mainly because of a supply-demand imbalance, but also because of the, you know, the enhanced, improved economic outlook and the effects of federal stimulus. More taxable issuance has come into the market to refund taxable debt. So in effect, you've had taxable debt replacing existing tax-exempt debt. You've had banks that have come in strong to lend to municipal issuers. And you also have, you know, the prospect of higher taxes. All are, you know, really making the supply and demand dynamics, you know, even stronger, you know, waiting towards the issuer side of things. Markets really should, you know, we don't see them doing anything but remaining attractive for the near to medium term because of all of this. So I'll turn it back over to you, Susan, for questions. Thank you so Thank you. much. If I can just interrupt you for one sec, I just wanted to, uh, with pardon, thank you, number one, to Lisa and your partner, Matt Fabian, for going through literally thousands and thousands of data points over the years. It must have been 15,000 or 30,000, I don't even know, and verifying every single one of them. Every data point we publish goes through uh, multiple levels of verification. So thank you so much for partially funding the, the research, uh, the research and publication efforts over these five years. We really are grateful for that. And a special thank you to Gabe, who is probably a very busy guy right now. He and I uh, share a, a common background at Standard & Poor's before I left to go back into journalism and research. And he left to he left to go really grab the brass ring at the LAO in California. But thank you to you all. Susan, I know you've got some questions teed up for the remaining 15, 16 minutes that, that we have. Do you want to lead them off? Yes, I do. And I have two overarching questions, and one uh, that I think are really important, very good questions from that have been uh, suggested, and, and we encourage you to do this going forward as well. And let me start with one from Chris Garzon of Peterson Foundation, and it is, 
how can states best prepare for federal for when federal aid wanes off? This really refers also to Lisa's potential cliff question. So perhaps we can hear from all of you and perhaps start with you, Juliet, and then turn to Gabe and Erica and Lisa and then end with Bill. So Gabe, you are at thinking and acting on this question right now. How best to prepare? It's a great question. It's something, yes, that our office is currently actively doing work on, and we are cognizant of this cliff that, you know, could be happening in September, roughly. And as a result, we're the, the kind of framework that we're thinking about at this time, which is still preliminary, and so we haven't finalized it, but we are thinking about guidance that suggests that the legislature consider ways to use the funding to smooth out the transition off of uh, the federal supports, address any gaps that maybe have existed heretofore in the types of federal support have, that have been provided. Our legislature already has done that with regard to, we have um, provided gold, what we call golden state stimulus uh, payments for filers of uh, taxes that use individual tax identification numbers or I-10 filers, which was a group that was not eligible for the CARES Act checks, for example, or the previous federal aid. And so we're looking at ideas like that. And then uh, the money has to be spent by 2024. But we're also thinking that it's somewhat of a once in a generation kind of uh, influx of resources coming into the state. And the state also has a lot of long-term challenges facing it. And so to the extent we could use the money in ways that would address some of our longstanding challenges that kind of where there's a nexus between those challenges and the pandemic, whether it's homelessness, some of our uh, state infrastructure, our systems for managing public health or you know, unemployment insurance programs, things like that. We're exploring ideas for ways that the money could be used like that that would generate some lasting benefit to the state. So those are kind of, we're, so at this point, I guess the answer is we're, we're trying to work up some principles that might be of use to the legislature and plan to put those out in the coming weeks. Thank you very much, Gabe. Juliet? I mean, I would just echo everything that Gabe said. And as I mentioned in my opening remarks, that that kind of longer term look at both expenditures and revenue is really important, especially in this context. And so, you know, just I mean, there are states that need to do some more work and really understanding what expenditure demands look like three years out, four years out, again, as these federal funds start to unwind. And so I think it's just really important to do the analysis, to have the information so that the funds can be used in a way to kind of soften impacts. And then also the rainy day fund is at play here, states that these recoveries, especially when there's fiscal funds at play, the recoveries in state budgets kind of lag the economic recoveries. And so, you know, making a plan, like doing this longer term expenditure and revenue forecasting can help kind of to make a plan for using those federal funds to soften the impacts and then also plug in rainy day funds at the appropriate time. So before we go on, let me just confirm, Juliet and Gabe, can these funds be used from your from what you know now for replenishing rainy day funds and paying down debt? Gabe's that- right in the middle of that, so he should probably answer. Yeah, our understanding is that we cannot use the money directly to make a deposit to the rainy day fund or reduce taxes. There are some of these uh, restrictions on the use, and so that's part of the, you know, of course, we want to figure out how to use the money in ways that is uh, comports with the rules. So Erica mentioned that some of that guidance from the Treasury is expected to be forthcoming in within a few weeks. And so, you know, we're anxious to see that ourselves. That brings up a question from Jason Powell from the Virginia Senate Finance and Appropriations Committee. He's got like a, a broader thematic question in this same area. Are states going to, to go back to saving? Are they going to use all this federal largesse to spend or will they will they save? Some states like California have very detailed formulas for rainy day replenishment, which is something that we recommend. Other states really leave this up to the discretion of the legislature or the legislature and the governor. Illinois, a, a very special case, has cash on the books, but doesn't just the legislature doesn't like to put money in the rainy day fund. So what's maybe this is one for for Erica, especially what what are you seeing and what are you expecting? I think states will save. You know, I think 
States don't want to count on the federal government. If there's another downturn, you know, that's always kind of a risk. So I think we will see states save. You know, I also think states are very mindful of their credit ratings. And we know that rainy day funds and budget stabilization funds are important to that. So I think, you know, states will work to replenish these funds. You know, the timing that states do it in might be different. And again, it will depend to what extent they can use these federal funds to do that. Um, but I think overall that states will continue to, to build up their reserves. Perhaps Lisa wants to weigh in on this question as well. And also specifically the bifurcation that you've seen over these last five years of states that are actually improving considerably and those that are still in under pressure. I want to really reiterate what Julia and Erica have said, two different points. One, that multi-year forecasting is going to be even more critical now, just to make sure that how monies are being spent can be sustained. And so, you know, and I, I think you see that some of the weaker ranked states, you know, New Jersey, for example, doesn't employ multi-year forecasting. That's something that really they should be looking at to make sure that they don't get themselves, you know, when they have their fiscal cliff, right, that comes when the, the federal monies are uh, done with, right, that they don't, they haven't created a bigger problem for themselves. And, you know, and New Jersey does have, you know, kind of a spending issue too. So just making sure that that doesn't actually get worse during the time. In terms of rainy day funds, I couldn't agree more with Erica that it's become an even more critical factor, I think, both from the rating agency perspective, as well as, you know, just from a, an understanding perspective of what that can do for you when you do face an unexpected downturn. And so, you know, I, I would expect, you know, I think that the Volcker Alliance and Pew have done a great job in kind of moving the rainy day fund issue, you know, kind of forward before the pandemic hit. The pandemic has really, I think, kind of put an exclamation point on how important a rainy day fund is. So, you know, Illinois, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, they, you know, New Jersey started to build up, but their, you know, their rainy day fund will be depleted by the end of the fiscal year 22. So it really will be important for those states to kind of rethink, you know, what they want their balances to be. And it ratings will, you know, will reflect that too. You have to look out for rules for, for the use of rainy day fund and perhaps misuse. Alaska is a special case, but a good example nonetheless. Alaska has a permanent fund which has limits on withdrawals, but the, the government for years has been has been relying on the permanent fund to balance the budget. Alaska runs a, a long-term structural deficit. At, with $60 billion in the bank, that reserve fund can, can last a long time. Nonetheless, Alaska balances its, its budget more in name than in, than in fact, and it's something that other states really have to have to watch for. So I would like to turn this conversation back to the report itself. And the role, the question for you, Bill, and please others weigh in, what is your hoped for role of this report? How do you want to see it used? That's a, that's a very good question, uh, Susan, and thank you for that. It's a benchmark, really. It would be a lot to expect every state to adopt A-grade practices in every area. State fiscal trends move very slowly. Pension reforms are extremely so. You know, Pennsylvania enacted a very creative pension reform for new employees, but that's going to take that's going to take many years to turn over as the, the state workforce turns over. Another answer in that area is states, states or cities create new classes of employees with with less generous pensions. But this takes a long time. I think that some of the some of the easier ones to do are the area of budget forecasting and rainy day fund policy. Connecticut was able to pass a rainy day fund reform uh, reasonably easily. And these are the ones that are not low-hanging fruit, but really within reach. I think in a way, those are the most important one-time actions we recommend against using them. But politicians are politicians and, and programs, you know, they have they have their favorite programs. So the budget culture takes a long time to change. So really, I hope this will be used as a benchmark for budget makers on the legislative and executive side, and also for investors to, to help them gauge what the risk is in a budget. The rating agencies do a great job uh, trying to quantify default risk, but these are really long-term risks that could affect ratings later on. So perhaps I can turn to the panel. We only have a few moments left. And reports such as this very important report from Volcker help increase understanding and expand transparency and 
put a spotlight on good practices and perhaps on not such good practices. How important is this information in your day-to-day working with the challenges of state budgeting? And more generally, how important is information on best practices? Perhaps we can have final comments from everyone, perhaps starting with you, Lisa, then uh, turning to Erica, Juliet, and we'll let Gabe finish us up. Go ahead, Lisa. Yeah, no, I, I think that the report is really powerful from an investor standpoint in illuminating some of the things that you know states do well and not so well in terms of their budgeting. I've been in the industry for about 30 years now. And you know, going through the budgets at the level of detail that we did, you uncover some things that you just didn't know were going on. So I, I do think it it kind of elevates the discussion among budget practices. And, you know, a little competition never hurt anybody, right? So putting out some grades there and getting people to focus on it, I think is is a great thing for the industry. Thank you, Lisa. And there are grades on individual practices, which go see their grade. Erica, please add to those if if you'd like quickly. Yeah, absolutely. You know, most state legislatures are part-time. Sessions are short, and I think it can be difficult for states sometimes to step back and think about some of the long-term fiscal challenges that they face and ways that they might solve those. I think, you know, the work that you all are doing is important for states to have that perspective and a good reminder of some of the tools that are out there and the things that they can be doing to improve their long-term fiscal health. So thanks for all your research. Julia, thank you for your work on this. And any final comments? Thank you. I just, again, it's just a really helpful tool for policymakers and practitioners. A little competition, as Lisa said, doesn't, you know, doesn't hurt anyone. We have um, a situation where legislators on the House floor reference Volcker in looking to adopt some additional uh, fiscal sustainability practices, uh, realizing that Idaho had adopted them in the Volcker report and it was time for Utah to adopt them. So I just think it's a really helpful tool for policymakers to compare amongst other states. And Gabe, you are on the front lines. How does it feel to <laughs> be looked at in this kind of forensic way? Is it helpful and to see what your peers are doing? Yes, it's very helpful. I can speak personally, coming from the analyst community into the practitioner realm. I mean, we don't, as practitioners in uh, government, we don't actually always have great insight to what the other states are doing. So a report like this is is very helpful. And it's also very helpful as a communication tool when I talk to some of my bosses to point out the importance of things like our fiscal forecasting efforts and and that. So, yeah. That's exactly what we hope, and I'm sure Bill and the folks who are responsible hope for. We are coming to the end of the hour. Thank you all. Thank you, Bill. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government's finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.